in February of this year, 2013, I was invited to be the speaker at a Bible conference held by Church of the Redeemer in Mesa, Arizona. The topic for the weekend was titled, Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise. During that conference, I gave a series of four lectures. There were far more material than I could deal with in just four lectures. I have since expanded those initial four lectures into a total of 14 messages of which you are listening to one of these messages. I encourage those who are listening to these messages to visit my publishing website at triumphantpublications.com and read for free a written version based on all of these 14 messages. These messages are being compiled into a published book titled Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise. Uh, this published book will soon be available by mid-June of this year, 2013. My website will guide you on how to purchase a hard copy when available. If you don't want to purchase a hard version, you can read the transcript of the book. By simply going to my website and clicking on the appropriate box titled Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise Transcript. Also, on my publishing website, I've listed links to all the audio messages found on Sermon Audio under the general topic, Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise. May the Lord bless you as you listen and or read about this very dangerous view that is gaining ground, unfortunately, among many churches, and institutions. In the previous message, I was discussing the importance of knowing the genuine view of creation so that we can readily spot the counterfeit view, which is an insult to the glory of God and a view that will do inestimable damage to the Lord's visible church. I want to emphasize that the biblical meaning of the days of creation are indeed 24-hour periods of time, and that there were six sequential days with God resting from his creative work on the seventh day. The Bible presents the creation of the cosmos as God's creative work, as we would understand a six-day work week. In this message, I will also address why the biblical chronology as revealed in Scripture especially in Genesis chapters 5 and 11, is indeed an accurate genealogy with no time gaps. In other words, the views of Bishop James Usher that the creation was in 4004 B.C. is indeed a faithful understanding of Scripture. I will emphasize that the Westminster Divines accepted Usher's chronology. This chronology was generally accepted up to the 19th century, when the rise of Darwinism began to cause people to question the accuracy of the biblical chronology. The work of Floyd Nolan Jones in the 20th century is an exhaustive study of biblical chronology as well, who, independent of James Usher, arrived at a creation date of 4004 B.C. as well. I will, in this message, be referring to this very important work. I have already mentioned that the Westminster Confession is definitely on the side of a literal interpretation of the days of creation as a sequence of six 24-hour days. What is the biblical basis in maintaining the days of creation as 24-hour periods and for maintaining that the universe is about 6,000 years old 
and not 14.5 billion years old, as others would like to tell us. Well, let's begin with a biblical case for the days of creation being six sequential normal days of 24 hours. I think that Dr. Kenneth Gentry and Dr. Donald Crow have done an excellent job in setting forth the biblical basis for the case for a literal six-day creation exegesis. Essentially, I'm going to be summarizing the outline presented by Dr. Gentry. Again, I want to stress that a faithful exegete of Scripture doesn't go to unbiblical storylines or scientific views as reliable sources to then impose these on the text of Scripture. Well, what are the biblical arguments for viewing the days of creation as literal days? Argument number one, the fundamental use of the Hebrew word yom, meaning day. A word study for the word yom in the Old Testament reveals that the preponderant use of this term demands that we understand it to be a literal 24-hour period of time. The word occurs 1,704 times in the Old Testament, and the overwhelming usage has to do with a normal day from morning to evening. After all, what did the Westminster Confession say is the surest hermeneutical principle? It is, Scripture interprets Scripture. First, the early chapters of Genesis have the earmarks of historical narrative. The plain sense of the text lends itself to this understanding. The question then that any exegete faces is this. If the plain meaning lends one to see day as a literal day, then let's see how the rest of Scripture uses the word. Yes, I've said that words mean what they mean in any given context. But when a question arises as to the meaning of a word in a given context, it is always wise to see how the rest of Scripture uses that word. If the word day is commonly used to refer to a typical day in the vast instances elsewhere, and the meaning of day in Genesis 1 and 2 definitely lends itself to that perspective, then why not understand it to be that way? Unless there is overwhelming evidence in that given context to view the meaning of day in any other way, then good exegesis lends itself to the testimony of the larger context being the rest of Scripture. It is exegetical butchery to bring in any unbiblical sources to settle the issue. No, the Bible is quite capable itself of settling exegetical questions. Argument number two, key qualifying statements. This is one of, if not the most powerful argument, in supporting the days of creation and being normal days. Inspired Moses qualifies the six creative days with this all-important phrase, quote, then it was evening and morning. The obvious plain meaning is why this is a typical day, since each day is viewed as evening and morning, the first day, evening and morning, the second day, etc. When we leave out Darwinian presuppositions, then the text is rather obvious. 
It becomes blurred only when one allows unbiblical sources of authority to rival Scripture's plain meaning. This is why, for 18 centuries, the commonly held view is that these days are what we know as 24-hour periods. Key to understanding the meaning of evening and morning is to see how the rest of old, the Old Testament typically uses this phrase. Examples from Moses would include Exodus 18.13, where it says, quote, And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. And then we read in Exodus 27, verse 21, quote, In the tabernacle of meeting, outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. And then R.L. Dabney argues that this evidence alone should compel the adoption of a literal day view. Argument number three, the use of numerical adjectives. Consider this overwhelming evidence. In the 119 cases in Moses' writings where the Hebrew word yom, meaning day, stands in conjunction with a numerical adjective such as first, second, third, it almost always means a literal day. The same is true of the 537 usages outside of the Pentateuch. The only exception to this would be the text in 2 Peter 3, verse 8, that I will mention in a moment. Consider then these texts. <clears throat> Leviticus 12, verse 3, quote, And on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then consider Exodus 12, verse 15, quote, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. End of quote. Then consider Exodus 24, verse 16. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. When the New Testament says that Jesus was raised on the third day, was it the third literal 24-hour day or not? Or could it have been thousands of years? Let's consider argument number four, divine example regarding the Sabbath day. This has to be one of the most powerful biblical proofs that the days of creation were literal days, God specifically patterns man's work week after his own creational work week. Man's work week is expressly tied to God's. We see in Exodus 20, verse 11, it reads, quote, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it, end of quote. Then in Exodus 31, verses 15 through 17, we read, quote, 
Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. End of quote. Now, it should be obvious, since the Sabbath day is a literal 24-hour day, and since the basis for man's work week is specifically patterned after God's work in the days of creation, it should be obvious, then, as to the exegetical meaning of the days of creation in Genesis chapter 1. The only reason why we would not take the plain meaning and the obvious hermeneutical principle of allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture is because of a compromise with unbelieving science. It should be obvious since the Sabbath day is a literal 24-hour day, and since the basis for man's work week is specifically patterned after God's work in the days of creation, it should be obvious as to the exegetical meaning of the days of creation in Genesis 1. The only reason we would not take the plain meaning in the obvious hermeneutical principle of allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture is because of a compromise with unbelieving science. The one fallback verse that all the compromisers want to use is 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, which says, quote, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. End of quote. Theistic evolutionists say, See, there, here is the proof that day can mean an indefinite period of time. Now, it's plainly obvious that this meaning is to be understood figuratively. The whole context pertains to those skeptics who are denying Jesus' second coming simply because he has not returned yet. Peter says that God's not bound by time. Just because he hasn't returned yet doesn't mean he's never coming. For with God, time is meaningless. A thousand years is like one day with God, and a day is a thousand years. To use Second Peter 3 as some proof for interpreting a day to be millions of years in Genesis is just sloppy exegesis, to say the least. It is totally ignoring the prevalent use of the term day as it is used in Scripture. Well, let's discuss how we should trust in the biblical chronology in the Bible. 
Of course, one of the other major theological issues that theistic evolutionists have problems with pertains to the genealogies of Genesis. And the only reason why there would, there would be question about the genealogies is because the biblical data doesn't correspond with their pseudoscience. I know atheistic evolutionists refute this, but probably the theistic evolutionists also would likely question the biblical ages assigned to those prior to the flood. Men living to be 969 years? Seriously? That cannot be true, they think. And speaking of Noah's flood, I do not know that even old earth advocates who may not even be evolutionists are questioning the legitimacy of a worldwide flood. They are now adopting the view of liberals that it was a local flood. Dr. Henry Morris and other creationists have given plausible scientific explanations for lifespans being this long before the flood. But for them, science is not driving an interpretation of Scripture but only demonstrating that it is not science fiction to believe that humans could live this long. The chronologies of most interest to us are found in Genesis chapter 5 and 11. The plain reading of the text lends them to historical narrative, not some poetic literary device telling some vague story. I've already mentioned James Usher and Floyd Nolan Jones, who, independent of one another and separated by some 300 years, both came to the same date for the creation at 4004 B.C. They both used Scripture, the Hebrew Masoretic text, as the basis for their chronologies. Until the rise of Darwinism in the mid-19th century, Usher's chronology was generally accepted as accurate. If one were to take the modern mindset regarding Usher's chronology, it would be one of sheer ridicule, the ramblings of some foolish, ignorant, misguided man. Even those who teach in present-day seminaries who utterly reject Usher's conclusions really do not hold a candle to the scholarly capabilities of Bishop Usher. He was a most impressive scholar, as Floyd Nolan Jones testifies in his equally impressive work, The Chronology of the Old Testament. Having spent five years of research and writing, Usher's Annals of the Old Testament first appeared in 1650. Now this is what Floyd Nolan Jones is saying. He published his uh, Annalium Pars Posteriori, which he calculated the date of creation by using biblical chronologies. Floyd Jones gives this great tribute to Usher in his scholarly capabilities when he says, quote, Finally, to James Usher, 1581 to 1656, learned Archbishop of Armagh, the highest position in the Irish Anglican Church, scholar and historian of the first rank. Entering Trinity College at 13, he prepared a detailed work on Hebrew chronology in Latin at age 15, and received a master's degree when 18. At 19, he engaged in controversy with the Jesuit scholar Henry Fitzsimmons. Overthrowing him, none could thereafter match him in debate. An expert in Semitic languages and history, 
At 20, he was ordained. At 26, he earned a doctorate and became professor of divinity at Dublin. So great was his repute of tolerance, sincerity, and amassed learning, characterized by John Selden as, quote, miraculous, that despite the fact that he had been critical of the rebellion against Charles I, Oliver Cromwell greatly esteemed Usher and awarded him a magnificent state funeral in Westminster Abbey. His epitaph reads, quote, Among scholars he was the most saintly, among saints the most scholarly, end of quote from Floyd Nolan Jones. For John Selden to refer to Usher's scholarly abilities as, quote, miraculous, is quite a tribute because Selden himself was a man possessing impressive credentials. He was an English jurist and a scholar of England's ancient laws, constitution, and Jewish law. He was known for his true intellectual depth and breadth. The renowned John Milton held Selden in 1644 as, quote, the chief of learned men reputed in this land, end of quote. I think it's noteworthy that Usher's critics today, such as Peter Inns and Jack Collins, pale in insignificance to James Usher, and both do not merit to be mentioned in the same league as James Usher. Floyd Nolan Jones states that after studying the works of 40 other scholars in this field, he believes that Usher will still remain the, quote, prince of chronologists. Jones believes that modern critics of Usher fail because of faulty presuppositions and methodologies. They fail because these modern critics have their procedures based upon the Assyrian Epideme Canon, the royal inscription of the Assyrians and Babylonians, and the Ptolemaic Canon as being absolute and accurate as opposed to the traditional biblical school which regards the Holy Scripture as the factual source against which all other material must be weighed. He insists that if one uses the Hebrew Masoretic text and the Greek Textus Receptus, then one has no problem in piecing together an accurate chronology. Jones also insists that the rise of rationalism and evolutionary thinking essentially gutted the Scripture for being an accurate, factual, and historical record. He states that there is a clash of worldviews or two distinct schools or academics, or that is, academies, pertaining to biblical chronologies. One of these schools is the Assyrian school, where a biblical chronology is attempted by a synchronism between Israel and the Assyrian, Babylonian, and Egyptian records. The other school, the Biblicist school, regards the Holy Scriptures as the factual basis for determining chronologies. The guiding purpose of the Biblicist school is to construct a chronology utilizing only the Hebrew Masoretic text of the Old Testament, independent of any outside sources. James Usher and Floyd Nolan Jones would be the leading proponents of this Biblicist school. Jones bemoans the methodologies of modern critics who, in their so-called attempt to find more dependable material, they end up abandoning the primacy of God's scriptures 
for the testimony of pagan surrounding nations such as the Assyrians. He sets forth what he calls a trident failure of modern critics as they approach biblical chronology. The first problem of this inadequate approach is textual criticism. Jones severely reprimands those who succumb to the temptation of not believing God's promise to preserve his word. The second problem is that of evolutionary thinking. Jones states that fundamental doctrines of Scripture are constantly assaulted. Scripture must now bow to the altar of Darwinism, which now becomes the tool by which the Bible is reinterpreted. The supposed, quote, proven facts of evolutionary theory completely reinterprets the book of Genesis. And the third prong that Jones mentions is not so much a faulty approach to biblical chronology, but a chronology reworked in light of the first two prongs. Jones correctly indicates that one's presuppositions, that is, his worldview, determines a person's conclusions. If the Bible has scribal errors and other corruptions, then any chronology derived from it will be of little worth. Jones indicates that the text used to conduct a study of biblical chronology is essential. If the text used are inadequate, then so will the chronology derived from it be skewed. One poor text is known as the Samaritan Pentateuch. The other is the Septuagint, often cited as LXX. The problem with the Samaritan Pentateuch is that the editors were presuppositionally biased against the antediluvians, that is, those who lived before the flood, living 150 years without having sons. Consequently, they have the time frame from creation to the flood as 349 years shorter than what the Hebrew text states. Also, the time frame between the flood to Abraham's departure from Haran is 490 years longer than those recorded in the Masoretic Hebrew text. Moreover, there are 6,000 variations between the Samaritan Pentateuch and the Hebrew text. Floyd Jones indicates that the greater significance is between the Hebrew text and the Septuagint which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Jones states that many critics approach the Septuagint as a way of supposedly correcting what they thought were adulterations in the Hebrew text. One divergence between the Hebrew text and the Septuagint is with, is with regard to the age of antediluvian patriarchs relevant to the ages of their sons. The result is a difference of 586 years the Septuagint being greater than that of the Hebrew text. For example, the Septuagint gives the age of Methuselah as 167 years old when he begat Lamech, when the Hebrew text has Methuselah's age as 187, according to Genesis 5, verse 25. Consequently, the Septuagint has Methuselah surviving the flood by 14 years, when the Hebrew text has him dying in the year of the flood, that is, before the flood came, Genesis 7 through 10, 
And Second Peter 3, verse 20, indicate that only Noah, his three sons and their wives, eight souls, survived the flood. There are also discrepancies between the Septuagint and the Hebrew text on the various kings of Israel. Dr. Jones states that these discrepancies were due to deliberate editorial changes because the editors thought that the Hebrew text was incorrect at certain points. Dr. Jones affirms that the Lord Jesus Christ referred to the Hebrew text rather than to the Septuagint or any other version when our Lord in Matthew 5, 17 and 18 refers to the law of the prophets as to jots and tittles. The Greek Old Testament has no Greek letters for jots or tittles. Moreover, when Jesus in Luke 24, 27 and 44 referred to the law of the prophets, and the Psalms is speaking of him, the Septuagint does not have this threefold division, meaning that Jesus was not using the Septuagint. Point is, the Hebrew text is a faithful and accurate text of Scripture. And when one uses this, there are no problems in maintaining a faithful genealogical chronology. Dr. Floyd Jones refers to none other than Sir Isaac Newton, as one who had no problem with the creation of about 6,000 years ago. Sir Isaac Newton also dabbed in biblical chronologies. Newton defended Usher's date of creation, and he believed in a literal six-day creation. Moreover, Isaac Newton believed that most geologic phenomena could be accounted for due to Noah's flood. Having given all this justification why we can trust the Hebrew text, and Usher's chronology, let's look at the key chapters in Genesis dealing with chronologies. Genesis 5.1 states, quote, This is the book of the generations of Adam. Chapter 5 deals with precise, uninterrupted genealogies of Adam all the way to Noah, with Noah's sons Ham, Sham, and Japheth. And then Genesis 11.10 picks up with these words, quote, these are the records of the generations of Shem. And then, chapter 11 takes these generations all the way to Abraham. You probably have heard that we cannot adopt a view that the biblical chronologies are accurate history because there must be gaps in the genealogies. Well, guess what? There are no time gaps in the chronology of the Bible. William Henry Green was Old Testament professor at Princeton Seminary from 1851 until his death in 1900. Herein is the problem that we face. Here is a comment from his work titled, Primeval Chronology, written in 1890. Green is admitting that the genealogies appear to provide an accurate chronology, but then he cautions, quote, but if these recently discovered indications of the antiquity of man over which scientific circles are now so excited shall, when carefully inspected and thoroughly weighed, demonstrate all that any have imagined they might demonstrate, what then? They will simply show that the popular chronology is based upon a wrong interpretation and that a select and partial register of anti-Abrahamic name 
has been mistaken for a complete one. End of quote. Now this is a grievous statement, and it demonstrates the basic problem that we face. Theistic evolution does not submit to the authority of Scripture in all matters, and in practice, the latest science, often done by pagan men with darkened minds, is superior to inspired biblical authors. Note Green's comment. Science proves the chronology of the Bible to be a wrong interpretation, so he says. Moreover, he outright states that science has shown that the pre-Abrahamic chronology is mistaken. Those are his words. And he says that the Bible chronology is incomplete. Green therefore insisted that the chronologies were missing names, but he was clearly wrong in his contention. While it is true that the genealogies are representative rather than a complete genealogical list of all human beings descending from Adam to Noah, the genealogies are complete chronologically. For example, Genesis 5-4 states, quote, Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Now, there's a simple biblical answer to the skeptics, and one of these skeptics was Clarence Darrow, who chided William Jennings Bryan in the famous Stokes Monkey Trial in 1925, saying, Where did Cain get his wife? William Jennings Bryan was no biblical scholar, and he couldn't answer. But there is a simple answer. The answer is, Cain married one of his sisters when driven out, after his murder of Abel. We're told in Genesis 5-4 that Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters, never mentioned by name. And, according to the chronologies, 129 years may have elapsed between Cain's birth and his slaying of his brother Abel, when Cain is cursed by God to be a wanderer on the earth. The total years of Adam's life according to the Bible, chronology, were 930 years. The exegetical proof that the chronologies are historical narrative and not poetry is because of the precision given of the ages of the fathers when the children were born. For example, it says Adam was 130 years old when Seth was born, and Adam lived 800 years after Seth's birth. Then we're told that Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. Then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh and had other sons and daughters. The numbers add up precisely from one representative head to another representative head. It doesn't matter about the other sons and daughters as long as there is precision from one general, uh, generational head to another. As Dr. Floyd Nolan Jones has said, quote, Therefore, from all that has been said previously, the genealogical lists in Genesis 5 and 11 must be seen to not necessarily reflect the firstborn son from the time aspect, 
but at times may represent the name of the son that received the birthright and the blessing. As demonstrated heretofore, the father's ancestor's name is mathematically interlocked to the chosen descendant. Hence, no gap of time or generation is possible. In such an event, the position number of the patriarch may not represent the actual number of people as much as number of generations or the number of succeeding descendants who so obtained the inheritance. Regardless, it has been demonstrated that no time has been forfeited. End of quote by Lloyd-Jones. The chronology of Genesis 5 takes us up to Noah and his sons. But let's consider the oldest man to have ever lived, Methuselah, who lived to be 969 years old. The pre-flood prophet Enoch, according to the New Testament in Jude 14, was translated, meaning he was taken up, meaning like Elijah, he never saw death, as we normally understand. At the age of 365, the Bible says, God took him. Enoch was 65 years old when he begat Methuselah. Now, are you ready for the meaning of Methuselah's name? If you take the Hebrew meanings of the various parts of his name, Methuselah means, when he is dead, it shall be sent. It shall be sent? What is the it? The chronology demonstrates that in the very year that Methuselah died, the flood came. But even more important than the name of Methuselah is the number of years he lived. If the biblical writer of the chronology was making up numbers and made Methuselah just five years older, then Methuselah would have lived through the flood which is impossible according to Scripture. And, as noted earlier, if one adopts the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew text, then Methuselah lives 14 years after the flood, which also is impossible. One can go to Genesis 5 and do the calculations. The total years of Methuselah's life was 969. Genesis 5, verse 25 says, Methuselah was 187 years old when his son Lamech was born. Verse 26 says that Methuselah lived 782 years after Lamech was born. When Lamech was 182, he begat Noah. In doing the calculations, this means Methuselah was 600 years old when Noah was born. Then Genesis 7:11 says, guess what? Noah was 600 years old when God sent the flood. Well, well, this is the year Methuselah died. Therefore, his name really did mean, when he is dead, it shall be sent. Dr. Donald Crow emphasizes in his book that there is a distinct difference between historical narrative and mythology. Mythology would have it say something like this. A long, long time ago, in a far distant place, there was a man known as Adam and Noah. No, historical narrative is precise. 
Consider this precision and why this is not poetry. Consider Genesis 7, 11, and 12, which says, quote, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventh day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were open, and the rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. By the way, I mentioned Jude 14. The inspired text says that there were seven generations from Enoch to Adam. This is exactly what Genesis 5 says. So the New Testament genealogy corresponds precisely with the Old Testament genealogy. Is this a story filled then with thousands of gaps? Hardly. I found this most interesting. Can you imagine the value of oral tradition of Shem, Noah's son, giving Abraham and Isaac a first-hand account of Noah's flood? We're not told in Scripture that Shem did such a thing, but it would have been humanly possible. According to biblical chronology, Shem was still alive during a portion of the lives of both Abraham and Isaac. Abraham will live to be 175 years old, according to the Bible. According to Scripture, Abraham was 75 years old when God made a covenant to him in the year 1921 B.C. Shem, one of Noah's sons, was still alive and will live an additional 75 years until his death in 1846 B.C. at the age of 600 years. Shem was still alive when Isaac was born to Abraham. Isaac and Shem's lives will overlap by 48 years. Could you imagine the possibility of the promised seed who Isaac was sitting on the lap of his Great, 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 great granddaddy. Ten greats, by the way. And Shem saying to him, Well, boy, it was like this in helping my daddy Noah build that ark. And we were all aboard that thing. Well, you can only imagine what happened next. When the waters above the firmament collapsed. And being with them critters for a year on this thing that floated on the waters. Well, let me tell you. I made that up, of course. That would have been some oral tradition, would it not? But it could have actually happened. All in all, 76 generations, according to biblical chronology gathered from Luke 3, elapsed between the first Adam and the second Adam, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. The biblical chronology can be trusted as accurate history. The Westminster divines believed it, and so should we.